Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Greetings, everyone. I'm Vicki Basplega, Director of the Clinical Specialist and Scientist section here at ASHP, and thanks for joining. I'm excited to share with you that today's episode is a curated feature from the exceptional programming from the 2021 ASHP Mid-Year Clinical Meeting. Please enjoy the voices of your colleagues as they share the latest clinical information, best practices, and leadership advice at the world's largest gathering of pharmacists. So with gout introduction, it's the most common form of inflammatory arthritis in the United States. So more common than rheumatoid arthritis or other inflammatory-based conditions that are rheumatologic. There's about 9.2 million cases in the United States, and this is roughly a 4% incidence overall. And interestingly, there's been no increase in the use of urate-lowering therapy over the last two decades. And this is despite the publication of the previously published 2012 guidelines by the American College of Rheumatology. Overall, adherence to urate-lowering therapy is poor, and this is likely multifactorial. Part of it can be a lack of understanding of the actual disease state itself. Other things may be medication-based costs, and then also side effects to medications previously. So the 2012 ACR guidelines were criticized for low quality of evidence supporting treat-to-target recommendations, and that's um, something that will be addressed in these 2020 guidelines because of newer data that's been published overall. So the methods of this um, use grading and recommendations assessment, development, and evaluation methodology. And this is used to rate the certainty of evidence and also develop recommendations. And the purpose of all this was to develop actionable guidelines. So not just guidelines that are available, but ones that action can be taken to optimize the care of your patient overall. And these consisted of a core team, an expert panel, and then also a voting panel. With regards to the voting panel, it was a very diverse group that makes up the voting panel. There were rheumatologists, a general internist, nephrologist, physician's assistant, or now physician associate, and patient representative. And so it, this was done to diversify and perspective with the decision making in terms of the, the gout guidelines. PICO questions were utilized, so population intervention comparator and outcomes questions, and then systematic literature reviews, including two network meta-analyses were used to address these PICO questions. The first network meta-analysis evaluated starting urate-lowering therapy versus no urate-lowering therapy, and then the second network meta-analysis evaluated anti-inflammatory agents and gout flare management. All of the recommendations were rated as either strong or conditional. And the strong recommendations were ones that basically the benefits consistently outweighed the risks and were supported by moderate to high certainty of evidence. Compared to the conditional recommendations, this is a situation where benefits and risks were more closely balanced and or low certainty evidence or no data was available when addressing the questions overall. And as previously stated, we are going to discuss the differences and highlight the differences between the 2012 and 2020 guidelines. Anything with an asterisk out beside the, the bullet points are going to signify a new or changed recommendation when compared to those 2012 guidelines. But all of the guideline recommendations will be included in the next few slides that are, that are in the 2020 ACR guidelines. So indications for pharmacologic urate lowering therapy. Initiating urate lowering therapy is strongly recommended for gout patients with greater than or equal to one subcutaneous TOFI, 
evidence of radiographic damage and frequent gout flares. And frequent gout flares is defined as greater than or equal to two annually. And this is a little bit different from the 2012 guidelines in that there's newer data that has been published to suggest that now it can be a strong recommendation. Although the frequent gout flare patients and also the TOFI or patients with TOFI previously were recommended that urate lung therapy be utilized, the data wasn't as substantial as is current. So there's high certainty of evidence regarding efficacy of urate lowering therapy to reduce flares, to reduce TOFI, and also reduce serum urate concentrations. Thus, this was upgraded to a strong recommendation in the 2020 guidelines. Also, a new occurrence here is looking at the evidence of radiographic damage. This was not addressed in the 2012 guidelines overall. And specifically in the 2020 guidelines, they do not suggest what radiographic modality should be utilized. They just say if there's evidence of radiographic damage, that um, these are situations where patients should be started on urate lowering therapy overall. Also, initiating urate lowering therapy is conditionally recommended for patients with greater than one flare, but less than two per year. The way this differs from the 2012 guidelines is that this specific patient population was not addressed in the prior guidelines. They address patients that have frequent gout flares, but not patients that have had flares, but they are infrequent. So thus, the data is not quite as strong, but nonetheless, it's suggested as a conditional recommendation in this particular patient population. Indications for pharmacologic urate lowering therapy. Initiating urate lowering therapy is conditionally recommended in patients experiencing their first gout flare if they also have moderate to severe CKD, stage three or more, so also serum urate concentrations greater than nine, or a history of urolithiasis. Now, the history of urolithiasis is very consistent with the previous guidelines as well, but the other two are slightly changed. So the previous guidelines suggested that urate lowering therapy be initiated in patients that have CKD stage two or more. But these guidelines specifically address and say if they have stage three or more that, that urate lowering therapy should be utilized. And this is largely based on a higher likelihood of gout progression and development of clinical TOFI in patients with moderate to severe CKD. And furthermore, adding urate lowering therapy itself may prevent the progression of renal disease. And this also takes into account the limitation of treatment of acute gout flare in patients whenever they, whenever they have advanced CKD, because the options to treat people for acute gout are more limited in that particular patient population. So thus preventing flares may be advantageous. Also, this includes the data um, uh, suggesting that serum urate concentrations of greater than nine um, would be patients that should be started on urate lowering therapy if they have their first gout flare. And uh, this is based on literature suggesting that patients with serum urates greater than nine have a greater probability of developing gout progression. The second bullet point is initiating urate lowering therapies conditionally recommended against for patients experiencing their first gout flare in the absence of the above situations or with asymptomatic hyperuricemia. So i.e. a serum urate concentration of greater than 6.8 with no prior flares or subcutaneous TOFI. And this is, even though there is data supporting that utilization of urate lowering therapy in patients experiencing their first gout flare may diminish the chances of subsequent gout flares, the number needed to treat is fairly large. So 
essentially 24 patients would need to be treated for three years to prevent one gout flare. So thus, the guidelines suggested that it's recommended against in these patients that do not have pre prior gout flares or subcutaneous TOFI. The recommendations for patients receiving urate lowering therapy specifically addressing allopurinol. So allopurinol is strongly recommended as the first choice, including patients with CKD stage three or greater. And this is really important because this is this guideline really focuses and says most of our patients should be started specifically on allopurinol. And um, even in patients with um, stage three or greater CKD. Second is allopurinol or febuxostat is strongly recommended over probenicid in patients with CKD stage three or greater. And um, these are both changed slightly from the previously published guidelines in terms of the recommendation because this guideline itself um, essentially takes into account that um, the literature out there supporting allopurinol and also supporting safety even in patients that have advanced CKD. And then allopurinol and febuxostat are strongly recommended over probenicid in patients with CKD stage three or greater. This is a little different from the previously published 2012 guidelines in that um, probenicid was recommended to be avoided in patients with GFRs or creatinine clearances less than 50. So it kind of changes a little bit because now you're looking at patients with GFRs that are essentially less than 60. So recommendations for patients receiving uh, urate lowering therapy still continuing to discuss allopurinol. Starting low-dose allopurinol with subsequent titration is strongly recommended over starting higher doses. And this is uh, very similar to what was recommended in the 2012 guidelines, but there's essentially two reasons why we need to be very conservative with our starting doses of allopurinol. First of all, starting more aggressive dosing is increases the likelihood of creating an acute gout flare. So starting more conservative doses may diminish that risk. Also, um, starting higher doses of allopurinol compared to lower doses will increase the chances of development of allopurinol hypersensitivity syndrome. And so due to the potential ramifications of that, we wanna be conservative and, and uh, try to minimize the risk of patients developing that. So allopurinol starting doses are generally less than or equal to 100 milligrams per day, and then a lower dose in CKD stage greater than or equal to three. So this is a little bit different from the 2012 guidelines in that the recommendation was that you start 50 milligrams daily in CKD stage four or more. Um, but these newer guidelines will suggest that you start a lower dose in patients with CKD stage three or greater. So again, this is predicated on trying to minimize the risk of allopurinol hypersensitivity syndrome and also acute gout flares. And remember that your patients will often need doses of greater than 300 milligrams per day. Um, and the max dose per FDA um, or per package insert is also going to be 800 milligrams per day. But we're, we should be starting the medication and then upward titrating until we can get to that gold serum uric acid level of less than six. And there's some literature supporting that patients that have a larger body surface area um, or uh, obesity um, and or patients that are receiving diuretics such as thiazides and loop diuretics are patients that may have a greater probability of achieving a serum uric acid level when the doses are higher compared to patients that don't have those things. Um, but um, oftentimes they may, the patients may need higher than 300 milligrams per day. So recommendations for patients receiving allopurinol and genetic testing. 
testing for human leukocyte antigen B star 5801 prior to starting allopurinol is conditionally recommended for patients of Southeastern Asian descent and African Americans and is conditionally recommended against in other patients. And the, the first bullet point uh, suggesting that the testing in Southeastern Asian descent, this is very similar to what was suggested in the 2012 guidelines, but now the 2020 guidelines also add African-Americans to this group as well. So if you look at the probability of um, this allele being positive in patients, um, patients of Southeastern Asian descent have about a seven to eight percent instance of the presence of this allele, whereas African-American patients have about a four percent. If you compare this to Hispanics or Caucasian patients, there's less than a 1% incidence. So that's why it's recommended due to the prevalence of this allele in Southeastern Asian descent and African-Americans testing for this at baseline. And one of the reasons we're so concerned about this is though allopurinol hypersensitivity syndrome is relatively infrequent, um, there is a mortality rate that's quoted to be up to about 25%. So it's best to try to prevent this if at all possible. Okay, allopurinol desensitization is conditionally recommended if prior allergic response and cannot treat another oral urate-lowering therapy agent. And this was not exactly addressed in those 2012 guidelines, um, but this is something that should be considered potentially in patients that meet this criteria. So now changing to looking at febuxostat. Starting low-dose febuxostat with subsequent titration is strongly recommended over starting higher doses. And again, just like we discussed with allopurinol, if you start higher doses of febuxostat, the probability of producing an acute gout or pr promoting an acute gout flare is greater. So starting more conservative doses is preferred. And these guidelines specifically suggest that uh, febuxostat less than or equal to 40 milligrams a day should be started in terms of a starting dose. And then switching to an alternative urate-lowering therapy agent is conditionally recommended for patients with taking febuxostat with a history of cardiovascular disease or a new CBD-related event. And a lot of this is based on the data that was published about the CARES trial. And this is something that Dr. Adams will be discussing substantially later in the presentation. Switching to febuxostat is also conditionally recommended over adding a uricosuric agent in patients with persistently high urate concentrations greater than six, despite maximized allopurinol, and again, taking into account that the allopurinol dose has been titrated upward to try to achieve that serum uric acid goal of less than six. And then also in patients with continued frequent gout flares, so greater than two per year, and non-resolving subcutaneous TOFI. And this differs a little bit from the 2012 guidelines in that the 2012 guidelines suggested about there's a possibility of adding a uricosuric agent to the xanthine oxidase inhibitor rather than switching allopurinol over to febuxostat. But these guidelines suggest that switching to febuxostat in patients that meet this criteria would be preferred overall. So recommendations for patients receiving uricosurics, uh, i.e. we're usually focusing on probenicid. So probenicid low starting doses, 500 milligrams once or twice daily with subsequent titration is conditionally recommended over starting higher doses. And again, a lot of this is based on the data suggesting higher starting doses or more aggressive starting doses will be more likely to exacerbate gout or cause an acute gout flare. Then these guidelines also conditionally recommend against checking, checking urinary uric acid and also alkalizing the urine. 
Now, the previous 2012 guidelines suggested there might be some benefit or some utility in doing this in patients. However, the 2020 guidelines did not think that there's enough data to support making this recommendation, so they generally recommend against this. Also, in terms of probenicid, um, avoid use in patients with known renal calculi, and this is consistent with the 2012 guideline recommendation, but then also avoiding use in moderate to severe, severe CKD stage greater than or equal to three. And again, this goes back because if you look at those 2012 American College of Rheumatology guidelines, they suggested avoiding probenicid if the creatinine clearance is less than 50. So this is saying if the GFR is less than 60, you generally should be avoided. So that's a slight difference. So now switching to paglottocase. So paglottocase is a first-line therapy is strongly recommended against. Now, there is data suggesting benefit with paglottocase, but the voting panel and the guidelines suggested that some of the limitations to the drug itself are reasons that it should not be recommended as a first-line therapy. So if you look at disadvantage of this medication overall, there are several things that should be considered. And it is very costly. There are safety concerns um, with the medication because of um, anaphylactic risk with association administration of the drug. It is administered IV, and so you generally have to be in a healthcare setting to receive this medication. It's given every two weeks or so. And then also I'm worried about patients that have G6PD deficiency. So if somebody has glucose 6-phosphate dehydrogenase 6 deficiency and you start this medication, the risk of hemolytic anemia goes up substantially. And so this is something that should generally be screened for at baseline prior to starting the medication to minimize the risk of that overall. So the voting panel looked at all of these considerations and said that's why this probably should not be used as a first-line therapy. And then switching to paglottocase is strongly recommended in patients with persistently high serum urate concentrations greater than six, despite maximized therapy, and they have continued frequent gout flares greater than or equal to two per year, and or patients with non-resolving subcutaneous TOFI. This is more specific than was suggested in the 2012 guidelines overall. And then switching to paglottocase is strongly recommended against in patients not achieving serum urate target concentrations, but they have infrequent gout flares um, and or they have no TOFI. Okay, so timing of urate-lowering therapy initiation and duration. So starting urate-lowering therapy during an acute gout flare is conditionally recommended over starting after the flare resolution. And this is something that was mentioned in the 2012 guidelines as a possibility, assuming the patients were receiving anti-inflammatory therapy at the time. But the 2020 guidelines kind of took another step and said this is conditionally recommended um, for several reasons. And one of those reasons is patients that are admitted with acute gout flare are many times very motivated based on their symptoms. And also they are right there so you can discuss the therapy with them. Whereas holding off and waiting to initiate the therapy at a later date, you run the risk of the patient not coming for the follow-up. And if they don't come for their follow-up appointment, then the urate lowering therapy never gets initiated. So the voting panel thought this would be better in order to go ahead and start the medication whenever you have access to the patient as well. Um, now, in contrast, there is a concern about worsening or prolonging a flare when you start urate-lowering therapy during an acute gout attack. However, there are two small randomized controlled trials suggesting initiation does not significantly extend the flare duration 
or the severity. And so again, that was used from the panel to suggest that we should go ahead and start um, therapy during an acute gout flare. So indefinite urate lowering therapy is conditionally recommended over stopping urate lowering therapy. So if you have a patient that meets the criteria for starting therapy, then many times this is going to be a long-term treatment. So treat to target strategy. Um, this is something that is recommended now per the guidelines, and this includes dose titration to achieve a serum urate level less than six, and this is strongly recommended over a fixed dose strategy. So using some fixed dose of allopurinol, for example, you should continue to titrate to get to goal. And then urate lowering therapy should occur, titration should occur in a reasonable amount of time to avoid therapeutic inertia. And a reasonable amount of time is generally considered to be weeks to months. So back to the treat to target strategy. There's since those publication of the 2012 guidelines, there have been several studies that have come out. And so there was a nurse led study in the United Kingdom and a couple of pharmacist led studies that have suggested that upward titration and treating to a target will minimize gout flares, will reduce serum urate levels um, and increase adherence and also increase the probability of achieving higher doses than the normal run of the mill treat to a certain dose uh, strategy um, rather than looking at a serum target urate level. And so the data that has been published since then and suggestive of the benefit is also what the, the uh, voting panel used to say that a treat to target strategy would be preferred. Now, looking at what a reasonable amount of time is, the previous 2012 guidelines suggested that patients be seen and upward titrated on drugs every two to five weeks. The 2020 guidelines don't definitively say two to five weeks. They just say a reasonable amount of time, and they suggest that that would be in weeks to months, not years, because you don't want to avoid upward titration for fear of not optimally controlling the patient's gout itself. So treat to target strategy, we mentioned this a second ago, but we're achieving and maintaining a serum urate concentration of less than six is strongly recommended over no target. Now, this is consistent with those 2012 guidelines, but the 2012 guidelines also included a caveat to suggest more stringent goals for uric acid might be applicable if you have patients with subcutaneous TOFI. So in patients with TOFI, sometimes um, the previous guidelines would suggest maybe a target of less than five might be appropriate. These guidelines do not address that. They just say that your patients should have levels of less than six overall. And then also, augmented protocol of urate lowering therapy dose management by non-physician providers is conditionally recommended. And this also includes patient education and shared decision making. And so this is predicated also on the previous data that we highlighted from nurse-led interventions and pharmacist-led interventions to suggest superior benefit in gout patients overall. So concomitant anti-inflammatory prophylaxis of the urate lowering therapy. Um, whenever urate lowering therapy is started, we should be utilizing cochicine or NSAIDs or prednisone or prednisolone. Essentially, the main change from the 2012 guidelines is mentioning prednisone and prednisolone by name here. Um, but oftentimes what is picked in this, the guidelines don't suggest in the 2020 update which one should be used because a lot of it will be based on your comorbidities in your patient. For example, if you have somebody that has chronic kidney disease and heart failure, then utilization of an NSAID would be, uh, should be avoided for risk of worsening AKI or worsening CKD and AKI on top of that and or causing um, heart failure flares so, or heart failure exacerbation. So um, your, your patient's comorbidities will many times dictate what, what is appropriate to use. 
And then prophylactic therapy is strongly recommended for three to six months over less than three months. And um, this is a little bit different from the 2012 guidelines in that most patients would need to be treated with anti-inflammatory prophylaxis for at least six months based on the previous guidelines. But this just suggests that it should be done um, and it should be done for at least three to six months versus no therapy at all or less than three months. Gout flare management. Uh, very similar to the previous guidelines, NSAIDs, colchicine, and glucocorticoids are strongly recommended over other medications. Um, these guidelines did not mention anything about doing dual therapy using two different treatment modalities depending on the severity of the gout flare or how many joints are affected, so that's a slight difference. Um, and they do reiterate that low-dose colchicine is strongly recommended over high-dose colchicine because the lower-dose grouping, which is generally 1.2 milligrams times one, followed by 0.6 milligrams an hour later if the gout flare is not resolved. That low dose group has got very similar efficacy to higher dose groups and likely has less um, adverse effects, including gastrointestinal problems such as diarrhea. So gout flare management, use of glucocorticoids over interleukin-1 inhibitors and ACTH is strongly recommended in patients who cannot take oral medications. Um, this is slightly different from the 2012 guidelines because the 2012 guidelines suggested ACTH itself might be utilized in acute gout flares, um, kind of similar to other agents, but this is kind of downgraded in suggesting that glucocorticoids would be preferred. And then use of an IL-1 inhibitor over no therapy is conditionally recommended for patients whom anti-inflammatory therapy is ineffective, poorly tolerated, or contraindicated. And um, so this is a very unique subset of patients that might meet criteria for use of an IL-1 inhibitor such as canakinumab. Um, but canakinumab is very expensive. There are side effects associated with it. So, um, and it is off-label, uh, but nonetheless, the, the guidelines, the 2020 guidelines suggest this is a possibility, but only if patients meet this criteria. So topical ice is a juvenile therapy is conditionally recommended. This is very similar to the previous guidelines. Management of lifestyle factors and supplements in gout, adding vitamin C supplementation is conditionally recommended against. So the 2020 guidelines do not think there's enough data suggest this is beneficial. Um, so this is recommended against. Using weight loss programs conditionally recommended in patients who are obese or overweight. These guidelines do not highlight what type of diet would be recommended. It's just suggesting that weight loss and or weight reduction would be beneficial in these patients. Then also conditionally recommend limiting intake of alcohol, purines, and high fructose corn syrup. This is very consistent with the previous guidelines as well. Now, management of concurrent medications in gout, switching hydrochlorothiazide to an alternative antihypertensive is conditionally recommended regardless of disease activity. Though the 2012 guidelines did highlight that hydrochlorothiazide and thiazide diuretics may increase uric acid, they didn't take a stance to suggest that they should conditionally recommend to be avoided. So these guidelines say even if your disease is controlled and they have gout, probably discontinuation of the hydrochlorothiazide would be preferential in those patients. Choosing low sartan preferentially as an antihypertensive is conditionally recommended regardless of disease activity, and this is predicated on the uricosuric activity of low sartan itself which is unique to low sartan, um, and other ARBs are not going to be able to produce that same benefit. Dr. Adams will be talking to you guys more about this in, uh, later in the presentation. And then stopping low-dose aspirin conditionally is recommended against regardless of disease activity. Uh, and this is assuming that you do have an indication for the aspirin in the first place. Also, adding or switching cholesterol-lowering agents to phenofibrates conditionally recommended against regardless of disease activity. So even though phenofibrate does indeed have some uricosuric effects, the voting panel looked at side effect profile and 
Also, um, you know, overall risk versus benefit and thought that phenofibrate utilization, that the benefit did not clearly outweigh the risk of switching to this agent. Thank you, John. So shifting over to management of lifestyle factors, limiting alcohol intake and purine intake is conditionally recommended. The confidence in limiting purine intake is really limited by a small number of studies that do provide some conflicting results. People with gout should be advised to reduce their excessive intake of red meat, fish, and shellfish. Additionally, alcohol intake should really be limited. We know that consuming one to two alcoholic beverages uh, in the prior 24 hours was associated with a 40% higher risk of having a gout flare than periods without alcohol. There also appears to be a dose-dependent relationship as heavier drinkers were more likely to have a gout flare. Limiting high fructose corn syrup intake is also conditionally recommended as studies have shown that fructose may increase serum uric acid levels. Specifically, uh, studies in patients with uh, existing gout are limited though. Using a weight loss program is conditionally recommended. Again, studies are limited and of low quality evidence and no specific weight loss program is endorsed at this time. Non-pharmacological interventions do have a role in our management of gout. For instance, rest and topical ice application are important adjuncts to managing acute gout. A small, unblinded, randomized controlled trial of 19 participants with crystal-proven gout were treated um, with steroids and colchicine twice a day, were randomized to topical ice application for 30 minutes four times a day versus no such intervention. Results demonstrated that ice application reduced pain attributable to acute gout on day seven. Additionally, the mean reduction in joint pain was 7.7 centimeters and those treated with topical ice plus the other agents compared to only 4.4 centimeters and those treated with colchicine and steroids alone. Adding vitamin C supplementation is conditionally recommended against for patients with gout regardless of disease activity Data is currently insufficient to support recommendation for the use in gout. Vitamin C use is hotly debated because previous studies have shown that vitamin C reduces uric acid levels. However, small randomized control trials have shown clinically insignificant changes in uric acid concentrations for patients with gout taking vitamin C. At this time, the guidelines have determined that current evidence precludes specific recommendations on the use of cherry and cherry extracts. Previous studies have shown an association between cherry intake and a reduced risk of gout attacks. However, researchers have been unable to conduct effective meta-analysis uh, due to a lack of relevant studies and the high degree of variation in the methodologies and metrics used. Further trials or long-term follow-up studies are really required to evaluate the efficacy of cherry intake. One randomized control trial by Stamp and colleagues showed no effect on uric acid over 28 days, while a study by Zhang and colleagues showed that an intake of 36 cherries per day was associated with a 30% reduction in gout attacks. However, the study did not directly compare cherries to allopurinol and patients already taking allopurinol had the most benefit. There is an upcoming prospective randomized control trial by Lamb and colleagues that will evaluate cherry tart versus placebo and hopefully shed light on this issue. An internet case control study 
reported that 42% of patients with gout use cherry or cherry extracts as an alternative. So unfortunately, patients are using cherry as well as natural supplements for adjunctive treatment for their gout. Patients anecdotally reported fewer gout flares, but they also reported more missed doses of their prescribed urate-lowering therapy medications. Natural product dietary supplements are frequently used for treatment of gout, but data regarding reliable safety and efficacy are lacking. At this time, evidence is not sufficient to provide guidance on efficacy and safety of these natural products, and larger, more rigorously designed randomized control trials are required. When discussing natural supplements with our patients, it's really important that they're aware that the U.S. Food and Drug Administration does not have the authority to review dietary supplement products for safety and effectiveness before they're marketed. Some products have demonstrated contamination levels above preferred daily endpoints for mercury, cadmium, lead, arsenic, or aluminum. As such, patients should understand the risks of over-the-counter supplements. Thanks so much for listening in today. Be sure to follow us at ASHB Official wherever you listen to your podcasts and check back soon to hear more featurettes from the 2021 ASHB Mid-Year Clinical Meeting. Until then, this is Vicki Basiliga from ASHB Official and thank you for all you do for your patients. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.